0: Welcome to another episode of Talking BS. My name is Van Santos, and as always, I'm joined by my old pal Corey Bell.
1: Uh, old good pal, I think is how you old started old good this pal. One off
0: with, I don't. Uh... <laughs> it was you know there were thunderstorms and lightning, and we're, it's Dude. just there was a lot going on. Um, uh, we are joined by a very special guest today, Kiko Scruggs. Uh, he came in, and we we talked about a, a very a very heavy topic, uh, but we talked about race in America tonight, and. One that I was pretty uh, nervous, also excited. It was kind of a, a lot of emotions to kind of talk about this, but I think it's one that we've we kind of alluded to a couple months ago. It's one that we've kind of wanted to do for a while. I think the conversation lived up to the hype. I guess, of sorts. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, no, it definitely did. And we took it in a, in a myriad of ways. Obviously, not anything too as in-depth as uh, we could have gone with a lot of this, uh, as we joke in the episode. He's we were, very smart. We we're the dandelion. He's very, we were the very dandy smart. Line. We didn't go down to the weeds too much. And yes, we had a, a, a doctoral candidate who, in all honesty, you can go ahead and call him Dr. Uh, Dr. Scruggs, Dr. Kiko, because he's he's already there, man. I mean, it's uh, the guy's very intelligent, very well-informed, and able to have this discussion with a couple of white boys who don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> So it was, <laughs> was good. it was. It was. It was very good. well well informed and well good. Uh, I'm really excited. You for got I to listen to this one.
0: Uh, all right, as always, you can find us on Twitter at talking underscore b underscore s on talk on Instagram at talking underscore bs. Again, those might have been switched, but you'll figure it out just like the TikTok machine. Y'all enjoy this episode 39 of Talking BS. 39. In the legal world, we call this force majeure. This is, the, this is an act of God, Corey. So, oh, gosh. <laughs> um, tornadoes, thunderstorms, loss of power. You know, that usually goes into that kind of, that kind of oh, bucket man. right there.
2: I yeah. just learned something new tonight. <laughs> are,
0: you guys, are you guys okay?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, dude, bored. Oh,
2: that's good. I was about
1: to go full like Joey from Friends and just start eating everything in the fridge because oh. we I mean, didn't have anything. I was like, I don't know what to do. That's awesome.
0: Today, we are joined by a very, very special guest, Mr. Jerry Kiko Scruggs joins Hello. us. Hello,
2: audience. How you doing? Well,
0: welcome to the show. Thank you. You've got a heck of a bio here. It's very impressive. Oh,
2: you're trying to flatter me? <laughs> from the very <laughs> like beginning,
0: it. yes, because I read it.
2: started I, Started, here. I've, started re- here. I've read it
0: many times. I have so many questions, but here it is. Jerry Eugene Scruggs Jr., you go by Kiko. Mm-hmm. You know what? We're just going to break it down from there. Where does Kiko come from?
2: Oh, gosh. So... In high school, you know how in Spanish class you have the names that you can pick from the list? Jose. My best friend actually, he stole my name that I wanted, which is Felipe. I wanted Felipe. Gotcha. And I was kind of upset with him for two days. Yeah. And then I settled (laughs) on Kiko. And it's crazy. Kiko just built so much traction after the Spanish class. I think it was Spanish 3 in high school, at Franklin High School. And so it stuck, and that became my quote-unquote international name. So, because I had a nickname, a family nickname, Tukey. My real name is Jerry. My government name that yeah. no one calls me. Yeah. Besides the people, like twenty years ago, they co- still call me Jerry. But everyone else calls me Kiko, 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 cool. or Tuki.
0: So that's awesome. That's hysterical. I didn't. One, I didn't know that story until just now. My name was Rico. Rico Suave. <laughs> Rico Suave.
1: It was, Suave. Suave. Be- Suave.
0: <laughs> Rico. I, I, I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Rico and Kiko. That's what we're going to title this, uh, this, uh, this episode. Awesome. Um, all right. Awesome. So you mentioned you're originally from Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, we're going to go through all these real fast, but you graduated with your first masters first, uh, in teaching foreign languages, uh, with the concentration in Spanish at MTSU in 2007. Uh, you obtained your second master's degree in Spanish and Latin American literature at UT Knox in 2014. That's a good start, but you were like, no, I'm I'm going to keep going. Um, <laughs> all right, so you're currently a PhD candidate at UT Knox, and uh, this fall you're set to defend your dissertation, which you're focusing in on... Um, you're focusing your general research on issues of race, gender, sexuality, nation building, LGBTQIA plus identities and masculinities, femininities in Caribbean and Latin American literature. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to it is a lot. I'm going to we're going to have questions there, but um, oh, yeah. your specific area of current research is related to the characterization of the black male protagonist in contemporary 20th and 21st century In Latin American literature with focuses on Haiti, Brazil, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. Mm -hmm. You were an adjunct professor of Spanish for 10 years at Columbia State Community College in Columbia, Tennessee, but in his spare time, he enjoys spending uh, time with his wife, Jenna, his nine-year-old son, uh, Anthony Marcel, and his four-year-old daughter, uh, Jasmine Ray. He also loves listening to music, podcasts, reading, and playing basketball. Now, I didn't even know where to start with all of that, but I listened to a couple, a couple of other podcasts that you were on, and, yeah, you know what you're talking about.
2: <laughs> oh, for sure, man. Yeah, I, I'd like to think so anyway. The <laughs> credentials
1: are there. Yeah, the your credentials, credentials are there. there. Corey, do you have any questions that? How do you even get started? Yeah, how do you, so how do, you, how do you get started with, with these kind of degrees? And what, like, what drew what is you uh, your interest?
2: Okay, yeah. so, so true story. I think when I was eight years old is when I, I – had this infatuation for I've always had an infatuation for people in different cultures but when I was eight years old there was some sort of a program on Univision which is a Spanish language channel you know like Telemundo and all these other Spanish language channels and there was some sort of a feature on Panama and all the people on the screen were black people and so that was the first time I thought of black people outside of the United States. I'd never thought of it like that. I always only thought, been from the South, Gotcha. that blacks were in Tennessee, the United States. I didn't think about the larger diaspora. So when I saw that, I was like, wow, so maybe I should learn Spanish, you know, because I was just a curious kid, sort of a bookworm. And I speak four languages now. Like, I speak four languages. I speak French, Spanish, Portuguese, you know, and English, obviously, but... Um, I've just had that infatuation for people, I love people and I like to meet different types of people. Did you did you and say so that's kind of how my journey started as a kid.
0: Yeah, how how old are you about?
2: 8 years old. 8 years old. In okay. in sixth grade I took a 6 week course of Spanish. Um, Mario Friedel I actually connected with him on Facebook Messenger. He's in Wisconsin now. He told me, "Jerry, you should really study Spanish because you have something, you have a gift for it." And so I never forgot those words when he told me Mario Friedel. And so Mario Friedel and Mr. Humphrey, I've had a lot of important influences. My parents, they've always just encouraged me just to be the best you can be and, and be whoever you are. And so that I've always taken that message to heart.
1: Wild man, that's awesome. I don't think I've had a passion that I've been able to stick with for more than about five minutes. <laughs> and, and you've been doing this since you were eight, like that is that's incredible. I mean, that 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 really is. I don't, uh, you know, I'm working through my second master's now, have and I I, I applaud you. See, the Navy's paying for all the mine, so I only could imagine <laughs> you had to go through. <laughs> to, to, yeah. to well, my, par- yours. my parents
2: have been a big help, so luckily, um, Good. I've had awesome. some I've, been, I've had some assistance along the way. So
0: you go to MTSU after f- living in Franklin. Mm-hmm. What what took you there? Versus, I guess you end up at UT Knox for your for your next two degrees. You know, just count down the degrees. But wh- anything that drew you to those universities specifically, or like, was it? You know, what?
2: Good question. Uh, monetarily, it was just more convenient just yeah. to go to a local school. Like a lot of my friends went to MTSU, but I guess scholarship offers from Belmont. I really wanted to go to Belmont at the time because they had a great liberal arts program. I wanted to go to Sewanee University as well because they had a great... They had a high-ranked Spanish program, but the problem was that they didn't want to offer me any money at all. Belmont didn't want to offer any money. MTSU offered me some money, so I went to MTSU. It ended up being a great experience because I made the best of it. I, I think that would have been the same situation as Sewanee or Belmont, and... The rest is history. Yeah.
1: Do you think that that helped shape or maybe give you that kind of notion that you were talking about already with, you know, black people are always in the South or, you know, they're in Africa. You know, brown people are more in Mexico. I mean, have you been able to go and visit? uh, So I guess two parts, that. And then, you know, have you been able to go and kind of visit, you know, all these kind of places that you're studying, uh, you know, to kind of get that first world experience?
2: What was the first part of your question?
1: Oh, just, I mean, you know, do you think staying locally, uh, I guess, when were you able to start traveling and see those locations? Or were you okay. al- always kind of local to where that kind of notion just sat there, awesome. right?
2: Awesome. Yeah, so the first time I was kind of able to experience it, like firsthand was in high school, like a graduation trip, you know, so everyone decided to go to Cancun. I didn't want to do that because people go to Cancun, to get trashed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's crazy. They make you sign those consent forms when you had at the meetings <laughs> because I'm only 17 at the time, and so... But when you're in those countries, you're 18, you can drink legally. Well, yeah. I guess 17, depending on the situation. <laughs> or 12 or 13, 14,
1: 15. Yeah, I'm about to say, you know, what? in Italy,
2: we were basically with like 14, 15 years, like we were all drinking, the whole population. <laughs> hey, like I'm just day, 17. But <laughs> it was a high school graduation trip with my friend Carlos that I still talk to today. Uh, he got me to go because he had gone to a previous trip to London, Spain, and a bunch of other places in Western Europe. And so it was a Western Europe trip. 2000 is when I graduated from Franklin High School. And we went to the Vatican. We went to Italy, Spain, France. And so it was a good introduction to the world for me. That was the first time I left the country when I was 17. And then I went to Costa Rica the year after that, you know, with a previous relationship. But okay. and <laughs> that, was, that was a great experience because... I was able to use Spanish, and my Spanish actually got so much better exponentially yeah. compared to when I was in the United States speaking Spanish. It was good, but it wasn't as good when I went to Costa Rica because I had to use it every day for 65 days in a row. And they, I came back to the States, and my friends were like, Kiko, my gosh, you are really a native speaker of Spanish. <laughs> it's crazy how your level of Spanish jumped up even just from high school Spanish. So. That's,
0: that's awesome. Mm-hmm. You're, you're talking a lot about broadening horizons at a very young age. Mm-hmm. This conversation that we're having today is about broadening your, your spectrum, your perspectives. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to kick this off. First of all, thank you for sharing Thank you for being here, first and foremost. Thank, thank you, you for sharing right, about right, I mean. thank you for sharing about your history. I'm sure we'll we'll find some connections here and there along the way as we kind of keep going through this. But um, yeah, we're talking about race in America today, which it, it can seem like a pretty difficult conversation. Um, so I guess I just wanted to kick it off with a couple intro questions of like wh- why are we having this conversation? And I, and I'll answer first. I, I already kind of said it, but it's just broadening horizons, broadening. broadening kind of perspective. I think when we started this podcast, uh, nine months ago at this point, this would have scared the shit out of me.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> like I was, I, I was,
0: affra- I was afraid to voice Drink my, to I was afraid to voice my opinion about like what TV show was good over another. Cause I didn't want somebody to hate me. Right.
2: Drink to that, my buddy. But, <laughs>
0: but you know, I think as we've gotten kind of more comfortable, Corey and I knew we were going to have this conversation. We really wanted to have a good, well-informed guest to kind of bounce ideas off of, feel comfortable to have the conversation with. So I think that's kind of where I'm coming from. But Mm -hmm. um, any any thoughts from either of you guys?
2: Yeah, so this conversation is really important. The fact that you guys have me on means a lot to me because when I start my own forum next month, the whole point is to... Shout it out.
0: You're starting your own podcast. It's
2: going to be called Enter the K-Zone. And it's going to be a forum that's going to reflect sort of what we're going to be talking about tonight. It combats narratives stereotypes also um it's a way to show that people are really thinking about the larger issues at hand but you would never know that sometimes if you turn on the tel- the television wh- what I like to refer to is the poison box and so <laughs> it's it's really important to get alternative views on things to add more nuance and depth to issues i think a lot of times we are given information that is simply surface level and it ends up resulting in a bunch of fights, and and outrage and and fear and fighting. It, it boosts ratings, and it also creates controversies. And so, we lose sight of bigger issues, you know, that are right in front of our face because we can cover them up easily with these stories and these headlines and these sound bites. And so, I think it's important to have a conversation in depth with actual nuance. And personal, to add a personal test to it, because a lot of people look like me on TV, but they don't think like I do. And I think there's a larger population that believes that all black people think a certain way, and it's completely false. And, And white people don't think a certain way. Anyone, regardless of being white, black, or any ethnicity or race, we have different views. And I think the human experience is so important, and we need to really talk to each other and start talking about each other.
1: I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, you know, you've, you've kind of hit a, hit a quick nerve there. And I know we're going to talk through some kind of uh, race in the, in the media and in politics in a second here. But just to, uh, you know, follow up with what you just said, I mean, I think it, it is because it is such a headline centric, you know, culture. That, that is all we see, and that has created such a divisiveness and, and such an inability to knock down these kind of walls to have these kind of open conversations. Because we do need these kind of conversations. Whether or not you agree, you don't like it, whatever, who cares? I mean, it, there are conversations that need to happen because we're we're going to be around each other. We're going to live together. We, I mean, we're going to. So how, how are we going to advance together? You know, I think that's, in my mind, I mean, very, you know, you said it very poignantly i'm not going to try to you know kind of uh, go get that was i mean but yeah i think that's it i mean i think we it's very important especially when you look around uh you know the united states not even in the united states but you know the world today uh it's something that is it's a major topic and it's involved in a lot of different subtopics you know uh and that we're gonna hit on a couple of those we're definitely not gonna go down every single one uh, as we talk here we'd be talking uh six o'clock in the morning Exactly. We'll be here for a minute. We're already starting an hour late because of me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want to I don't want to do that to you guys too much. But no, hey, I think that's I think that's exactly that that's spot on. Spot on. I th- I think we're going to have a very
0: real world discussion. I want I think it's going to be very practical, very the average American, whether they're white, black, young, mm-hmm. old, whatever. I think it's going to be a very real world conversation. We did pull a lot of questions from from uh, some of our listeners, and I will say I want to say this uh, on, on here. we didn't get as many as I as we usually get okay and, and, I, and I think there's a kind of a point behind that there. Mm-hmm. I had to kind of open up at later in the game, so to speak, and say, you know, I, I'll make it anonymous if you want me to." and I, got I immediately more, got some more pull, and I think that in itself is kind of telling of the conversation, really? is it? it is yeah, wow, absolutely okay. and it, and it, they weren't the questions that I got back from some of those people, they weren't like crazy. They Mm -hmm. weren't, they weren't like, extreme on one way or the other. Right. But I think it was just that, I don't know if I want to put my name on that. That That's
2: how very telling. And it was like, Ooh, I don't
0: know if I like, like I said, to start off, this would have scared the shit out of me if nine months ago,
2: but
1: people just uncomfortable, but it's just an uncomfortable conversation.
0: And I think I've gotten to the point now, or we have where it's like, all right, I feel pretty comfortable in my own skin. We've put enough of our own ideas out there. I think people know where our intents are. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Intent is. Um, But there's
2: a reason also for that fear and a lot of it is justified fear because I think um, you have to also question people's motives. I think a lot of people have these conversations to themselves and I think that they yearn to have these larger discussions but they've been taught not to talk about certain things but it's also one of those things where people don't want to be judged. But I think if we sat down and talked you realize that you know what, if I meet someone like that, maybe it leads me to someone else that you know, thinks a different way and someone else that thinks a different way. And then you realize that a lot of us have common views. We just have different ways of maybe getting to the same objective. Or maybe we don't have the same objective, but we're able to discuss something that we didn't think we could discuss. But it's actually it's okay to have disagreement with people about these issues. So it's open dialogue, yep. which is completely opposite of what's going on in yeah. this culture today. Yes, which is like canceling people out, and you know the whole. It's very works. closed.
1: It's very closed. It's very closed. Well, somebody who who wanted to put their name on it, and, and I'll say like wanted to, but it, he, Tyler King has no no qualms with asking questions. Tyler he's King, a, oh guys, Tyler King, regular regular guy right there. Bring to pot. And, and, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And before you before you ask the
0: question. Tyler, Tyler King introduced Kiko to, to us. So thank, thank you to Tyler. Um, for
2: sure, man. Shout out big time Tyler King. Tyler
0: King. He was one, of, I think. Pretty uh,
2: good at basketball, too. Oh. Uh, don't give him any credit. Ain't no ba- there. He ain't any better credit Kiko there. though. <laughs> <What'd you say? laughs>
1: we got say? a challenge thrown down the <laughs> first 20 minutes.
2: Let's go. You I'm sorry, Tyler. A solid solid <laughs> 6.5 six
0: earlier. Is that what you said? <laughs> yeah, my
2: brother, my brother rated him a 7. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. That's a C student right there. Atta That's boy. a C student from the teach. That's funny. Um, All right. Tyler, so he, Tyler he you got? He kicks it off, though. He kicks it <laughs> off though, just right off the bat. He goes, "Can you? Uh, when was the first time that you did encounter racism?"
0: Oh wow, you talked about being eight and seeing it on seeing it on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was just kind of, that was just a different that, that was a representation.
2: Uh, that, that was um that was just seeing someone that looked like me yeah. that spoke a different yeah. language and you know not really been taught that in school. Yeah, because we're very much taught like even the way we're taught is we're conditioned to think that okay, when you think of blacks, you think of slavery. When you think of blacks even the way the teachers teach it at least back when I was growing up yeah. it was a very boxed in environment but um Tyler's question about the interracial situation is interesting I saw it and I was like well
0: yeah it's kind of a two part like the part two of this I, one I yeah. added to it but you it, added to it okay. yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sorry I'm sorry <laughs> you good the, the first part was just when did you encounter racism generally and then the second part would have been like when did you encounter racism towards you or your family because you are in an interracial relationship Kind of, kind of, you new, know, kind of two, two parts there.
2: Interesting. Okay, so this is a hard question to answer initially because we're going to have a dialogue afterwards. Yeah. But personally, I have had tons of, of racial incidents or ra- involving racism. I like to divide it into microaggressive racism and systemic racism. Okay. That's the way I like to do it. So most people, most people, In our community, we experience microaggressive racism, which is um, a lot of that comes from misunderstandings, stereotypes. I think I was in, um, what grade was it, second grade, and I overheard someone say, your black friend, Jerry. And it really raised my antenna when someone said, like, my black friend, Jerry, you know, because they're making a distinction between, you know, just because the color of my skin. And that has an effect on a child, you know, at seven years old. And yeah. so, I don't know if there's racism, but it's definitely, it's, it's a bias of some kind. And I think racism, honestly, is an overused word. But um, it's one of those things that it has different interpretations to the people who get inflicted by it than it does to people who tout the word all the time. Like, I don't... I don't go around saying, like, I was discriminated against yesterday, that day, that day. A lot of it is microaggressive, like the way people, like, they lock the cars. If you're walking in the parking lot, people will lock the car. Or they lock in the car because they see you as a threat or because you're a black person and you're a threat. Maybe they're doing that to anybody else. It yeah. may not even be me. But when you've been sort of traumatized from an early age, you, you have automatic defense mechanisms in place. Because you understand that the history of the country hasn't been the best. And so that's kind of how we come into the world.
0: So this is a this is a good segue into one of our our other questions here. Uh Mr. Ryan Best who joined us um on our episode where we kind of interviewed him about um triathlons, triathlons and his yeah. goal being like the only the what was it third?
1: Yeah. That's like third, third uh, professional, uh, third, third black professional triathlete. black
0: triathlete. It was, professional. it was kind of his goal. Yeah. like that's his like
1: thing that hey, he's working. He got towards. pretty good. He got pretty good. And, Give and him yes, the shout, out.
0: shout out. He he came in thirty fourth place, I think, a couple weeks ago, uh, out of one hundred and fifty nine at the Lake Logan Half Ironman. This is, that's this awesome. A, essentially. Uh, apparently, one of the like most elite courses in the states. Good. So he well was done, Mr. He, best He was pretty uh, pretty pumped up about that, and uh, very proud of him. Former guest. But he had a very general question just to start it off. But do you believe in systemic racism?
2: A hundred percent, yes. That's actually where I focus most of my attention, um, not only as an academic. And I sort of separate the academic from the activist part of me. That's kind of why I'm on this pod and on other pods. I'm going to start my own, my own because a lot of us in academia are sort of... Um, Censor. We censor ourselves because we talk about discrimination a lot, but the message doesn't get to everyday people. It gets to other academics. So we're talking to each other and not to the people that we proclaim to be helping out or or advocating for. And so this is a great opportunity because people can actually see in the legislation that I'm going to talk about later how racism oh, is man. so prevalent in, my word. in the political it's system. You said my favorite word. Legislation. It's, it's, uh, it's, ra- it's prevalent in all in most of our institutions today. So when I say systemic racism, I believe in it. It's a lot broader than the people talking about a Proud Boy or the K- or the KKK. It's um, it's really not acknowledging the wrongs of history, and understanding how those consequences of the history haven't changed from those days, and that goes a lot into the war on drugs and even before the war on drugs. The new Jim Crow, quote-unquote. But um, I won't even say the Jim Crow like a whole lot, like the new Jim Crow, because you guys mentioned something about the documentary. But it's basically acknowledging that there's a wrongdoing in history, especially to Indigenous Americans and Black Americans, and that that question was never really answered. There was never really—there was never an apology. There was never any sort of reparative um, consequences after that. I'm a big proponent of reparations. But for people to be on board with reparations, I think they need to understand how people lose so much, you know, monetarily, how much psychologically we're still affected by those ghosts of the past.
1: No, I think that that brings up a great point. Right. And and something I think we're going to talk a little bit about as we as we devolve, you know, you and I look, we had it. We had a we had a pre-call a few weeks back to kind of get to know each other. Right. We talked through some redlining. We talked through, you know, the segregation of schools. We've talked through some of the stuff. We're going to hit on some of this again. Uh, reparations we talked about for a minute. Uh, I think all very good. Uh, And and very worthy topics. I think we could spend an hour, two hours, three hours on even one of those topics, right? So Mm -hmm. I do feel like we're going to give everybody a slight disservice by not fully delving into them. But uh, I I think you kind of brought up a really good point there. Um, and, and I do want to ask, cause this is something that I've heard and I've heard it from, you know, I mean, some of my closest friends and, and honestly, people just in my own family, right? I mean, you know, you grew up in Tennessee, we grew up in Alabama. There are some, you know, maybe some more microaggressive, you know, kind of understandings and not necessarily full out racist thought, uh, you know, which I do think kind of comes from that systemic, you know, it's just, you don't, you don't necessarily know any better but one of the things that i've been honestly told and been asked uh, is why does everything have to be revolve around race or race be brought into some subject that maybe have nothing to do with it i mean do you find that that is actually a, a true sentiment and a true question and do you think that's a good or a bad thing either way
2: well i guess it depends on who you're talking to because i'm not one of the type of people to think like that that the person described okay. yeah. so it's um I'm an expert, I guess, in the area as far as like race relations and, and how race affects people on a personal level, like black men, black women, the whole internet the intersectional approach. But it's one of those things where like even the comment you made there about the microaggressive racism, to me, a lot of most racism that we encounter like day to day, I I'm willing to say this much. The people that I meet that I would view that's saying like racist comments, that's still just microaggressive racism. It's not systemic. Systemic racism is something that actually has power and it actually has consequences when it comes to like our lives. Like you can see it in a law. You can see it like the effects of that law are still in the place today. A comment is a comment. Like I have a thick skin. So someone calling me a a name or something is not going to bother me the same way it may bother someone else. Like most black people that I know, we just we're almost expecting the microaggressive racism. We just right. want fairness in the upper levels. We don't even really care so much about the discourse because once the system changes, I think people will fall into place. And people will. I don't think people on the average level are that bad. I really don't. I, no, I think I, a lot I, of it I, just I overexpo- is just over is under exposure. There was actually an NPR study that talked about how. Three-fourths of white people don't really know anyone that's non-white outside of their employment. So it sort of goes into the whole idea of people's friendships sort of reflect, like, okay, I have a bunch of white friends. I hang out with them. I don't have a bunch of black friends. And even if they do have black friends, there's maybe one or two. But one and two so is not to, really to a to big sample point, size. Then, so Right.
1: And, and, and to that point, like, would... I don't know, I guess the way that I'm thinking about it, maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. And, and, you know, I'm I'm more than happy for you to correct me. Uh, But wouldn't that be more where systemic kind of, you know, the old laws and the old legislations and everything has led to those, you know, innocuous microaggressions, even if they're not directly you know, from a KKK member, a Proud Boy member, you know, they're the guys. I mean, Obama talked about his white grandmother who said that she would cross the street when she saw a black man come and had nothing to do. It just it was a natural reaction. Right. So wouldn't that kind of be a little bit of a cause and effect?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's okay. what I'm saying. The danger, why the mainstream media talks about a Proud Boy or the KKK or the Boogaloo Boys or whatever it may be, whatever group they decide <laughs> to come up with. Right. The reality is this. We don't know people like that. Most of us don't. Most everyday people have, even blacks, even non-whites, we have racist tendencies, and it all comes from not wanting to share your experiences with other people, not interacting with other people, underexposure. So it's not even necessarily a white black thing. If you're underexposed to people, then you're going to be prejudiced towards certain issues. And so the whole point is to meet more people, meet as many people as possible. So you can cut down on the amount of prejudice that you have on an individual level. So that's why I said, but like you said, the systems in place sort of regurgitate those. And then the family structure is really important, too. It really encourages some of these same behaviors. And so you get people that are born into the world and then they think a certain way, maybe because their parents are are going against what they're thinking. The easy thing to do is to, to say that it's only a fringe element. It can't be a part of the whole fabric of society. It's only a bunch of fringe elements of society, which is, is not true at all.
1: No, perfect. It's just people don't so, want to
2: confront their own demons.
1: Uh, okay, no, I, I fully understand that, right? And I think that to your point, it's it's not necessarily that we are we're not talking about the extremist here, right? I mean, I think that's you hit on that earlier where that's that's what you see in the media. That's that's a lot more of what gets the attention. It's the it's the headline grabber. We are kind of having that more generalized everyday man discussion. And I think a couple of things that we've already kind of hit on a little bit here is, you know, the systemic racism and, and the systemic elements to this and how that really happened. Right. I mean, this was something, you know, Van and I were talking earlier and, and Van, I mean, I, I know I left junior year, but we never went over what Juneteenth was.
2: Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? No. Uh, like, yeah.
1: we, we, we weren't taught these kind of things. Yeah. We, Most we of the black exposed. people that I knew
2: growing up with, they didn't know anything about Juneteenth. I only so, knew but, because I discovered it in an Ebony book when I was a kid. Because, like I said, I've always been a bookworm. So I read <laughs> a book that my parents bought at a garage sale, and I opened it up, and Juneteenth was in it. It was an Ebony pictorial history of, of black America.
1: And so. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, but is that. But that's that's what's. I mean, halfway wrong, they're not getting that exposure, right? And if you're not getting that kind of exposure, I don't think to understand a, a more diverse or a different cultural past than your own or when we're kind of glossing over it and just saying, hey, we went from slavery to the 1964, you know, Civil Rights Act. Exactly. and like, you know, everything's in between. We're like, you know, okay, they weren't great, but mm-hmm. yeah, we got there, right? It's like, okay, there's, there's more than just, you know, 28 days in February where we can talk about some <laughs> things. Yeah, you know, sure. like, why can't we have these conversations and have an actual full on uh, discussion and dialogue through it? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to I don't want to rant too much here because I definitely uh, I, I will. But, you know, when we take it back to the school system, mm-hmm. right? Talk to me about especially because you are an academic, mm-hmm. you are in academia. What do you see or what would your feelings be now? Now that you're I mean, you're in that profession. So what what do you see from how we approach how we teach? and how we you know kind of help our help our kids kind of come up to hopefully prevent some of these these type of uh, you know microaggressions micro you know racist comments or anything along those lines
2: but but it's different for me because i have two kids but the right. only people i would talk this to would be my kids my family like my inner family because i only teach adults and that was a conscious decision i don't want to teach kids because That was one of my things. If I was going to be an educator, it was going to be on my terms. And I don't think that the country is ready to hear what I have to say about it when it comes to kids. (laughs) Because when you start teaching kids, then you have to go through school boards. You have to go through parents. And I don't need filters. Like, I'm not the type of person. So I go directly to the source. And so my home is in the academic sphere in college. And that's why I made the decision to do higher education. But as far as um, talking about this stuff in the actual um, public school system, like, below college. I think Mm -hmm. the problem is that you don't have enough Kikos at that level in areas like this. And because you, a lot of times, a student will tell me, Kiko, you're the only black teacher I've ever had or known. And this is anybody telling me this. And so it's just, it's a problem of underrepresentation of voices. And so I think if you had a little bit more diversity, it doesn't have to be across the board, but just to have some diversity, I think kids will learn so much more. Like they would benefit a lot just hearing someone else's, you know, take on something. And it's not necessarily race or anything. It's just um I think nuances are sorta of captured just by meeting people. But culturally there's signals that we have that I think sorta of benefit mankind if we really get to know each other. But it's one of those things where the way it's taught you have to fight the school boards, the curriculum, and the curriculum is bad at the upper levels. Like even in college, I'm in a program that talks about black people, but 90 percent of the reading list is about white authors in Latin America. So we have the same problem even in higher education. It's, it's not no. even an issue of that. It's, it's really a, a mindset. And the question is, like, who determines the curriculum? You know, who determines the curriculum to what you can teach? Like you said, when I was in school, it was civil war, slavery. You skip to the civil rights movement. You maybe talk about Jim Crow a little bit. And then that's it. It's like, and that's what's going to be the case now? Oh, Obama was the first black president. It's just... <laughs> oh, it's, hey,
1: racism's over. It's all over. Oh, it's
2: gosh. fine, guys. The post-racial... So, <laughs>
0: you you guys are both parents. Um yep. And so... I think there's a couple other topics under kind of – we talked about schools or just raising children, but John Lamond writes in. uh, He joined us for this week's TED talking, but he had a question here. He He said, do you think raising children um, to believe – that um, black Americans have been held back by systemic racism can eventually lead to holding their children back even more. In other words, do we run the risk of black American children growing up with a lowered expectation for themselves because of the way that they were taught or raised?
2: To me, this, the, to me that question is is, is is like a very prejudiced question in the sense that it, it just presupposes what blacks, how they raise their kids. And it's also kind of a politically... Um, suggestive question. I would say that in my personal experience and like other people who are raising like black kids in this world and biracial kids, I was always raised to think that I was just as good as anybody. Like that's how my parents raised me and that's how I raised my kids. And so, I didn't have that complex growing up. Like I thought I could do anything that anyone could do. Um, And I think that's how a lot of people are raising their kids. Like I think that question is sort of... um. I't think blacks, I don't think blacks are taught that they are um, net victims or anything like that, like that question suggests. I think that we are aware, but we also have to acknowledge that there's circumstances that, and we all have different sets of obstacles that we have to overcome, whether it's poverty, whether it's um, that, the way people perceive poor people, who are black versus poor people who are white. And I know people who are non-black that are poor. They get treated differently because they're social class the same way we do, but that extra element of race is also a signifier. So I think that that sort of discredits that, that you can't just... Ignore you can't say that I acknowledge the class struggle but not acknowledge the race struggle yes. because it kind of goes hand in hand.
0: So I, I heard again. I, I've heard you speak a, a good bit over the last like week or so. <laughs> Listen to I did a lot of research on you. So this sounds <laughs> this sounds a lot like your your conversation about critical race theory. A, mm-hmm. And then you talk about a very you had a very nuanced and in depth conversation about that and intersectionality. Mm-hmm. I think you called it. Can you give us a kind of a very. Concise mm-hmm. version of those two concepts,
2: <laughs> no doubt. So, so you,
0: you were kind of touching so, on it there. So,
2: intersectionality and positionality. Yeah, intersectionality was a is a term that was coined by a an attorney. Her name is Belinda. Her name is Kim, Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw Williams, and is basically she. It is part of the critical race thought. Again, she's a lawyer. I'm not. That's a law school term. And she coined it in 1989 from a from a publication. It was an article that she published. I forget what school she published it in, but she coined the term intersectionality. It has it existed before she published it,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but she made it mainstream. The the name intersectionality, which is basically the idea that a component of a person has certain divergent qualities that can affect that person's quality of life. So, for instance. Me being a man, I'm going to think a certain way about the world, but add the fact that I may be a poor black man or a rich black man or a gay rich black man. All those elements are going to contribute to the way that or my formation into the world. And so that's a pretty basic premise. Like no one can argue that those things are going to have sort of. influences on you, like the way and what type of environment you grow up in, on top of being a gay black man or um, a non-gay black man. It just depends, you know, on the situation. But it's basically the intersection of social class. It could be race. It could be anything and how it influences the person. And then positionality is basically your whole individual, um, the way you view the world on an individual basis within that intersectional framework. Sort of going into the W.E.B. Du Bois, like how he was a black man in 1903 and how he had to confront the world in 1903 as a black man. But from his standpoint. And so a lot of the things that you see on CNN and Fox and C B C is not the positionality of a black person it's the positionality of a corporate white liberal. And so that's why I'm very critical of mainstream media, because. You don't really get the positions of everyday black people. You get positions of the elite class. And so that's why those things are important, intersectionality and positionality. And I think that's why people should embrace them. It shouldn't be a controversy, really, but it's been sort of politicized into that for whatever reason.
1: Oh, it has 100% been politicized into that kind of thing. <laughs> so I, so, but, but with something you just said, one of the words you, I mean, you, you just talked about, you know, you know, hey, this is now becoming such a big deal because of the way that the, you know, an elite class thinks of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I don't want to keep tying this back, but I mean, in my mind, things do tie back, right? And when we look at this from, from that perspective, it, it's not very diverse when you look <laughs> no, at that kind not. of elite class, right? I mean, it's, it's not. It's a bunch of old white dudes. I mean, oh, straight, a, old straight white dudes. There's
2: plenty of black ones in there, too, though. know. There, mean, there
1: is, but it, it is disproportionate.
2: Yeah, but regardless of it being disproportionate, it's still, I always tell people, so you have black people that are in higher positions, but they don't represent us at all and what we want. But it's a visual. It's a cute visual. But it's not really a representation of people, everyday black people on the ground. So and you so, think the
1: same way, and, and I don't mean this in any disrespectful way. So please, but I mean you said the same thing about somebody like John Lewis. Yeah, you think John
2: so? Lewis in 1965 was different than the John Lewis in the late 1990s? Okay, it's a very okay. different experience. It's almost like he never left his 1965 experience. It's like he kept the same mindset all the way through. No one one that I know would view him as some sort of a, like back then he was definitely a champion because civil rights was a big revolutionary um, period. But it's almost like people forget that that period was back then. And it's like people don't know what to do. It's like that's the only point of basis that we use is, oh, the civil rights era, before the civil rights era, and after the civil rights era. And I'm like, maybe we need another one. Well, maybe this is a whole different experience anyway. And so I think it's it's kind of dangerous to think of it as like civil rights. Civil rights is perfect, but these are different times than back then.
1: So you mean, hold on, maybe I'm misunderstanding you then. All right, so maybe, so are you saying that his mindset didn't change? But, I, you know, in my mind, from what that means is it like changed, you know, the, 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 the times. the times changed, his mindset didn't change, and it needed to evolve. It still had the same central subject Absolutely. that needed to be addressed. Absolutely. But it was not being addressed in the way that the modern time needed it to be. Absolutely. Okay, I'm mm-hmm. with you. That took me a second. Me, I'm getting there. Hey, man, you got you, the doctor's on with us.
2: It takes we me a said, second to, to catch up.
0: We said this was going to be very nuanced. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Working through it.
2: But a lot of that is because John Lewis, he became this big figurehead afterwards. Because remember, yep. a lot of that is reception. How would people take John Lewis back then? Like most average white Americans wouldn't view him favorably at all back then. But if you think about now, of course, like post-civil rights, he's a big time politician. He's going to be more visible. And so he gets that recognition over time. But it's like people who look at him, we just see him as another black politician. He's not really doing anything besides living off of that. Jim Clyburn is the same way.
1: I you know I can see that uh, him him a little bit more so uh, and and just my personal opinion I do understand that but you know you've kind of talked about this already too and I it, it just this is what clicked with me with that MLK had a quote when he was talking at one point basically saying that you know we we've been able to advance so far but it didn't cost the American government one cent to get us off uh, and share what was it, it didn't cost us one uh, one cent to integrate the lunch counters it didn't cost them one mm. cent for us to be able to vote but the moment we want to have you know some sort of wealth redistribution and actually get some sort of you know just opportunity equal I equal e reparations. opportunity it, yes i.e. reparation and I know you are very passionate about that uh, <laughs> but you know it's it, that's we're not seeing the same economic wealth right mm-hmm. and and that that I think maybe kind of changes with that mindset and how you're going to get it versus the 1960s versus how you could get it in 2020 right mm-hmm. it's going to be two very different approaches yeah right and, and, okay. I just that's what struck with me.
0: So you, you, we've kind of skirted around this a little bit, but I, I kind of want to hit it on the head that we had quite a few questions kind of around this one idea. But kind of race and politics, media. You touched on uh, politics specifically there, but um, you know we had one question here that was just: Do you think that there truly is as big of a divide between races, black, white, or other? Or is just the media and politicians using race as a way to divide and conquer the country? On one of your recent ones, you talked about commoditizing racism. I thought that was a pretty interesting Mm -hmm. concept. But initial thoughts on that?
2: So my view is that I think it's so crazy because I studied Latin America. That's where my expertise is. And we've always seen Latin America through a class struggle lens, more so than a racial lens. But again, you can't separate the two. I think what's happening in the United States is that I do feel that race is overblown. I feel like it's more of a class struggle. Racism is an issue, but a lot of those issues would be um, they would be better if we had a more fair system up top. And so it goes back to system again. It's systemic racism, not microaggressive. Billy Joe yep. Bob that people like to put on TV like, oh, he hates Kiko. That's not the issue. The issue hate Keiko? is the Look government. At Keiko. Such a good the guest. issue <laughs> is the criminal justice system that's unfair. The system is the banking system that's unfair to black people. And all and all these other entities. I mean, we basically have these large media conglomerates that are controlling all the information. And so you're at the mercy of what they want you to hear. And You'd um, actually see, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you I don't think something it's everyday there. person. I think it's more so The system that's causing this, there's a huge class divide, and you can see that when you go to any major city in America. You go to Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Los Angeles. Gentrification is so bad in these areas. Areas in Nashville where white people would not even be seen 25 years ago, 20 years ago, and now those places are completely gentrified. And because the poor people are there, and it's not just all black people, the Latin people, the white people... It's a class struggle, really. They use race as a way to definitely stir the pot up more. But if people really band together, my proposal would be for people on the left side of the political spectrum, the true left and the true right, to join forces and meet common ground on certain issues. And we do have common ground on certain issues that the politicians don't want us to believe that we have common issues on. people do, exactly. And poverty is a big divider, so... Social class is a huge problem. I think more so than race is. I think once you start to improve one, the other one will start to get better too. But we have to attack the system first.